When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. How does a single 26-year-old woman with model good looks, dubbed the sexiest politician in parliament, become a federal Australian minister and get the media to take her seriously. Well, for Kate Ellis, it was a fierce battle of wills. Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. There's been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again. Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger. This is episode three of our series looking at new leadership, a style of feminised leadership that we've seen highlighted during the coronavirus crisis in stark contrast to the struggles of the world's strongman leaders. And thanks to everyone who got in contact after last week's episode with Dame Annette King, New Zealand's High Commissioner to Australia. She really is a fascinating woman. And don't forget, if you want to connect with us on Broad Talk, the best way to do that is to pull up a virtual chair at our Broad Talk Roundtable on Facebook. You can find us there as Broad Talk, all one word. And while you're at it, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And maybe you even want to leave us a review. Doing so will be a big help to us in getting the word out about this series. Australia fares badly on the global scale of women in Parliament. But is it any wonder when you see how women are treated by the men in charge, the women who sit opposite them, and the media? South Australian MP Kate Ellis caused a media stir when she was elected back in 2004, and an even bigger stir when, as the youngest ever federal sports minister, she strutted out in a tight leather dress and Gucci heels. Shocked by the sexual rumours that swirled around her and the disrespect that tailed her, Kate dug those heels in for 15 years. 
Now, after a stellar career where she held several ministries, including employment participation, early childhood education, women and youth, this political veteran is out of the game and writing a book on the real experience of women in politics. I caught up with Kate to discuss what needs to change to increase the representation of women and the impact of Jacinda Ardern on public perceptions about who can and can't be a political leader. We also interrogate that photo shoot, and why Kate will always wear pink. Kate, thank you so much for joining Broad Talk and for giving us this time in uh, what I know is a busy time for you. It's so wonderful to be with you, Virginia. Well, Kate, give us a bit of a picture or paint a bit of a picture as to where you are right now. I mean, I know you're at home and I know you have your one of your sons home from school, I believe. Just give us an idea of, of how you're set up in this uh, strange time of isolation. I, I was trying to keep that a secret. I'm very glad <laughs> that this isn't a video conversation because I'm, <laughs> I'm basically upstairs in the attic where I am surrounded the entire carpet is covered in pieces of paper um, from things that I'm currently working on in a very not very organised fashion at all. Yeah, so my five-year-old is is home today, sick, although he's not really sick at all, but he has a little cough and um, oh, he wants to be home with times, mom. I um, thought I'd do the responsible thing and keep him home. So we're hoping we don't have too many cameos from Sam um, during this <laughs> Well, it's fine if you do. That's absolutely fine. Now, you mentioned that you're surrounded by paper on the floor that is relating to something you're working on. I want to talk to you about that because I'm very excited about that project. But before we get to it, I want to take you back a little bit to help our listener get a sense of your leadership journey. So I want to go, well, first and foremost to 2019 when you were giving your valedictory speech. You were leaving Parliament after 15 years, and I've got to say, I'm sorry, I was one of those women who was really grumpy with you. Yeah. I was really disappointed that you were leaving Parliament. And I mean, goodness me, 15 years is a long innings you're yeah. entitled yeah. to. But let's go back. Before we talk about the actual leaving, the quitting, and how that felt, let's go back to when you entered Parliament. So 15 years prior, mm. you were in your mid-20s. Yes. And you walked in as uh, one of the youngest parliamentarians, yeah, certainly youngest women or one of, and uh, at the entry for members of parliament, you were told that, no, 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 this wasn't the entrance for staff members. I was I was told that many days when I arrived <laughs> at Parliament House, yes. Um, what was going on there? Well, I think that... We have a view and certainly back then there was an even more entrenched view of what a Member of Parliament looks like and I didn't fit that view and I was reminded of that every time a security guard would stop me trying to enter Parliament House or the Chamber. Uh, I mean, I had the experience once when I was travelling for some committee work. I got into my, um, my Commonwealth car and said hello to the driver and we sat there for a few minutes until um, finally he said, is your boss going to join us soon? Um, (laughs) And I had to explain, um, no, I was the person he was driving. I mean, it happened all the time. It happened Mm. in the media with people you ran into. It was constantly reinforced that I did not fit the mould of what people thought a Member of Parliament was and particularly what they looked like. 
got to say, you know, obviously there have been many women who have entered Parliament since you arrived and some younger women. And years later, Marissa Waters um, experienced exactly the same thing. Larissa was uh, told uh, when she was actually doing an interview on television, uh, a security guard told her to please move away and uh, assumed that she might have been just a young reporter. <laughs> yeah. So we, we haven't got much better at understanding what a politician looks like. But at that time, how, how did that play out for you, the fact that you didn't look the part but also probably deep down didn't feel the part either? Yeah, I think I didn't really think about it at the time but in hindsight I think, you know, we talk a lot about how women seem to suffer a lot more from, you know, what we've termed imposter syndrome than men do. And I, I look back and I think, well, there's probably good reasons for that. <laughs> there's probably very good reasons why, you know, for a long time I felt like, did I really belong there? You know, I, I think it does impact on your confidence in some ways and you just have to keep reminding yourself why you're there and what you're trying to achieve and try and turn off all that outside noise. But, I mean, I remember even before I'd been elected, the day that I was pre-selected, I went to do my first radio interview and I was really excited. I'd never been into a radio studio before. I thought this was great. It was, um, you know, it was a really positive, exciting day for me. And I went into the studio and I went and sat down and the announcer who was about to interview me um, started on the introduction. And as I sat there, he, he started and I remember exactly what he said. He started with, in one of the most extraordinary moves I've seen in federal politics in all of my career, the Labor Party have actually pre-selected um, 26-year-old unknown Kate Ellis for the seat of Adelaide. Um, and then he went on and on and on to list. He kept saying, now, now I don't want you to be mistaken. This girl wasn't even alive when man stepped foot on the moon. She wasn't alive for the dismissal. She, you know, like he just went on and on and on. And I sat there for about seven minutes as um, he did this introduction. And so I had to like right from the beginning, you had to make sure that you weren't too deflated by other people's mm. views um, because otherwise you'd never be able to get on with doing the job and actually putting your hand up and getting yourself elected. Did did that make you angry though or, or were you just a little bit baffled or shocked? I, th I think it probably knocked me around a little bit. It didn't make me angry and in some ways it would have been better if it made me angry because that would have, you know, fired you up and inspired me. I think it I think it knocked my confidence a bit every time that happened. Because it was or, a reminder a that, yeah. that, yeah, that kind of reminder that you, you don't really deserve to be here because yeah. you're young and you're female. Definitely. You know, it, it's bizarre, isn't it, because you followed uh, Natasha Stottespoia yeah. also from Adelaide. She also entered Parliament um, when she was 26. She was indeed the youngest at that time. Yeah. And uh, all the media could talk about, and I must admit I was, you know, I was there at the time, <laughs> all we talked about was what she was wearing. Yes. It was well, all I about the Doc Martens. <laughs> well, and it means that, like, there's no doubt that women members of parliament do have to think about their appearance much more than men do because we know that it's more of a focus. But I remember the day that I was sworn in, I was wearing a um, pretty standard blue-grey pinstripe suit because I'd seen what had happened to Natasha and I thought I just want to try and look the part, wear what I think I should wear that's appropriate in the parliament and 
get about my business. And the next day, there were two different newspaper articles. Um, one that said Kate Ellis was dressed like she was out for a day at the cricket. And the other one about how Kate Ellis was wearing impossibly tight pants. And I keep going back and looking at the footage. This is before I'd said a word in the parliament. But I had these two newspaper articles written just for getting sworn in when I was wearing a grey suit. And so there is sometimes it's so ridiculous that it's actually helpful because you realise there's nothing you can do about it. You can, you know, you can let it occupy your mind or you can just get on with the job and accept that that's going to be a part of things. Whilst we're talking about appearance, though, and and what you wore, I think there's an important issue to sort of unpack here, and that is that I know you were criticised at times for feeding that. You are, and for those listening who don't know you, you're tall, you're beautiful, you're glamorous, and you certainly were, you know, one of the most glamorous things to walk into Parliament House. And at quite a young age, here you were made Minister for Youth and Minister for Sport, and you did this amazing photo shoot for Grazia magazine, I think it was in 2010, where you wore what was referred to at the time as a, a a very sexy, glamorous leather outfit that made you look like a dominatrix and that you had killer eight-inch Gucci heels on. You looked extraordinary and certainly you you did look every part the, the runway model. And I'm going to say at the time, and people were saying rather than a minister. Now, how do you do that if, if on the one hand, you're concerned that there's a focus on what you're wearing and on the other hand, you, you, you do a shoot like that? How did that yeah, work? Yeah, look, that, um, it's interesting because at the time, all of the surveys of um, young Australians were showing that body image had become the number one issue um, in a way that it never had been before. Um, it was the number one issue for young women Um, but it was also really becoming more and more important for young men. And we'd never focused on it. Certainly, you know, we'd never had the federal parliament focus on it. So my view was, as Minister for Youth, you need to focus on the issues which are important to young people and you need to talk to them through the mediums that they listen to. So when Grazia said, we're going to do an article on body image and on how much our photos are retouched and on, you know, all the things that that happen behind the scenes and how unrealistic some of the images we portray are and we want to interview you for it. I thought that was a great opportunity. You know, people reading fashion magazines as some of the the young women that are most susceptible to really poor body image and um, eating disorder issues. So I thought it was a, a good opportunity to do that and to get the message across. Now, of course, what happened in in the broader media and in broader society was that that message was not communicated at all. All of the focus was on that photo. So that mm. was a clearly a mistake on my part. It's funny because the photo shoot, we actually um, did the whole photo shoot and it was over and done and then the little leather outfit came out at the end and they kind of said, hang on, can we take a shot? Do you want to give this a try? And I'd probably got carried away by by the photo shoot that we, we threw it on and we took a photo and that's what that's what they ran with. And that's you were quoted though afterwards saying that you loved doing it and that you didn't want it to stop, that you really enjoyed it. And look, that's perfectly reasonable for a, you know a woman, particularly when you get to play dress up to these amazing clothes. I mean, those heels yeah, were I fantastic. Think I, was, I think I was I was definitely pretty stubborn about it. I mean, the so the pictures 
um, went to the media and it was over the Easter weekend when there was this void, there was nothing else happening and it got blown up. It was huge. It was a huge story. There was a huge talking point and there were big debates over it all. And I got a bit stubborn about it. I thought, this is ridiculous. Um, Because it didn't stop you. I mean, you did go on and do other photo shoots and uh, another one I recall, and I I don't recall which magazine it was, but where you were sitting at a desk. um, Right in front of me, yes. Well, I've actually used that. I'm I'm embarrassed to say, although I'll be honest about it, I I used it in um, in courses that I did where I was training women how to manage the media and that was one of the things I was suggesting that they don't do. You looked, again, terrifically glam and gorgeous, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually feeding my own argument here. It wasn't the sort of image of a powerful woman leader that seemed to fit the bill at the time. And, again, we're talking a long time ago. Well, I think that's exactly right, but my view is and was then, do you pretend that you're something that you're not? I mean, mm-hmm. what we're talking about in this photo shoot was not a skin-tight leather dress. It was a long-sleeved, high-necked blouse and knee-length skirt and heels, which is something that I and I think any other 30-year-old that likes fashion would wear. I don't think it was unprofessional. I don't think, it, I, I don't think there was anything extraordinary about that I thought it was a beautiful outfit I thought it was a beautiful photo shoot and what was really interesting so that was a story on women in leadership and tips for women in leadership and and what the government was doing to help support women that's what the story was about and it was in the Sunday Age magazine and the interesting thing was that they had to rerun the photo and the following week or a fortnight later but this time it had the heading what's wrong with this picture And the reason that they had to rerun it is because they said they could not believe how much feedback they got of people and and it was mainly women and it was women who were angry. Um, One of them that's quoted in the article was angry that I was wearing high heels because they're bad for people's health and it's setting a bad bad example or it shows that I'm just trying to impress men. I don't agree that that's the reason why women Mm. wear high heels when they do. Um, but there was all of this talk about the fact I was wearing pink. Apparently that made me look more like I was the secretary than the minister. I think it's really interesting that that feedback came from women. And Yeah. Now I want to bring this forward because we're going over some old gra- ground here But um, and I'm going to uh, expose my own learning here as a, as a journalist and as a broadcast um, journalist for many, many years, couple more, several decades. As I said, I was one of those women who would look at a photo like that and think this is wrong. When I first saw uh, Christine Lagarde, for example, many years ago when she was finance minister in France and she had dangly earrings, I nearly you know, had a heart attack. I mean, I, I was a, a television presenter and you did not wear dangly earrings because it was distracting, because it was, it was fr- frivolous. Things have changed so dramatically in terms of not just, well, not just the representation of women. We still have a major problem there and we're going to talk about that. But I'm wondering if we have changed our understanding of what the problem is so much so that we're now able to see it's not actually the fact that women look frivolous or different or pink or have high heels on. It's that we don't value the way women are at all uh, as leadership material and therefore we 
by criticising we've been trying to encourage women to do what women have been made to do for thousands of years, which is to be mini-men, to become like men, where in fact what we should be doing is celebrating that difference, wearing more pink, if, if that's what women want to do. I think this everything we've discussed comes back to the fact that the mould still exists and people still have very strong views on what a member of parliament, what a leader looks like, what they dress like, what their background is. And I guess for me, the point is that that mould is always going to exist unless people challenge it. And my view was, if I'm a young woman who's been elected to do a job, do I spend my time pretending that I'm not a young woman and trying Mm -hmm. to be something that I'm not? Or do you just be yourself. And my view was that you can't stand up with confidence. You can't um, put yourself out there, put forward an argument, start a debate if you're spending half of your energy trying to be something that you're not. So I think when it comes to a focus on appearance, Julia Gillard actually said to me, she thinks that there's three options. Um, There's the option of you break the mould and you you cop what criticism comes and you accept that maybe that makes it easier for other people that don't fit the mould. You try and limit areas of criticism. You try and make sure that your hair is immaculate, your nails are immaculate, you know, nothing's out of place. Or three, you try and just adopt a uniform like the blokes do. You try Mm. and make sure there's nothing noteworthy about the way that you look at all. So different women will choose different options there. But I think to a large extent, I did adopt some of option one. I just thought I'm not going to pretend that I'm something that I'm not. And you know, we talked about the Grazia shoot. I do think that it, it probably wasn't in my best interest and it didn't help portray my message to be wearing a, a leather dress. But other than that, I don't regret the fact that I didn't spend my whole life in a in a drab grey ill-fitting suit. Um, why hmm. should I have to? Well, look, you make a beautiful point, and I must admit I I regret that I didn't sometimes wear dangly earrings and bright colours and and frivolous-looking clothes uh, when I was presenting news and other programs. You said in 2019 in your extraordinary um, valedictory speech, which was really, really moving, you said, rightly or wrongly, I felt an overwhelming pressure that it was up to me to prove that a young woman could succeed here and hopefully make it easier for those who followed. Yeah. Has it been a relief to have that pressure lifted off you now that you're out of politics? I think the pressure was lifted off me before that. I think the pressure was lifted as we started to see more and more women elected to the parliament. You know, the Labor Party has increased the number of women dramatically. And I, I think that did relieve the pressure that that I'd felt. And I did say rightly or wrongly. I mean, I think in a large part, it's probably pressure that I put on myself. But I think that pressure only really goes away by the power of numbers when you have more. Has it been a relief? Um, it's been a relief not from that pressure. I think it's been a relief to not be subject to everything you do, every decision you make, not just how you do your job, but how you look, um, who you choose to marry, you know, the decisions you make about your private life, being subject to public scrutiny. I'm enjoying not having that anymore. I <laughs> can't blame you. Well, let's let's come to your actual quitting. So you announced it in 2017, and and then, uh, but you you stayed out uh, the term until the next election. And as I said at the beginning of this, you know, I was one of those grumpy journalists who was you know disappointed that you were leaving. 
and that you cited as the the key reason is that your son would be uh, going to school by 2019 and that you wanted to be there for him. And so you were leaving for family reasons and made it very clear that that's the choice that you were making was best for you and your family, but that's certainly not the choice that all women should make. But, you know, it was pretty tough because, again, you copped a lot of criticism. And I just want to remind you, and I'm sure you don't need much reminding of this, but, you know, a terrific columnist in Sydney Morning Herald, Jacqueline Maley, made the point, um, and she also has a young child and is a single Mm. mum, was at the time. And she said uh, in her piece about Kate, she was done pretending uh, this startling new fact that her baby's allure could be shoehorned into old practices and old ways of working. In other words, uh, she well, Jacqueline goes on to say that um, the motherhood pull was too strong for you and really it was proof that one couldn't be a full-time politician, particularly at ministerial level, and have young children. Yeah, I really tried to avoid my decision being seen as a broader statement, uh, saying that it's not possible to be a mother of young children and be a member of parliament, because that's just not true. Um, We see Mm. so many of them in our parliament, mums and dads with families who have made different decisions and have made it right. I, I think the thing that we sometimes overlook is that every family is different. And I think I'm not the mother that I thought I would be. Um, it, um, I changed when I had children and I guess my life changed and my priorities changed. And, you know, it's one of those things that, of course, it's going to be subject to people people's own views and commentary on what they think of your decisions, but you can only make the decision that's right for you. And I actually went out of my way to try and not make this a, a statement about women having children and being members of parliament to the extent that I was actually pregnant. I was pregnant when I first went and, went and told Bill Shorten of my decision and I said to him, he said, you know, you don't need to make this decision now. It's very early in the term. And I said to him, well, I feel like I need to make this decision now because I want it announced um, before I announce my pregnancy. I do not want the story to be that Kate Ellis is pregnant and so decided she has to leave mm-hmm. the parliament. Um and it was funny because Bill knew that as soon as it was announced that I wasn't running again, then the jostling would start. There'd be a vacancy in the shadow ministry. There'd be a vacancy in the shadow cabinet. People would start lobbying for it. So he wanted to hold off on that for a while. But it got to the point where I was saying, Bill, like, I'm very, very pregnant now. <laughs> I need to make this <laughs> announcement. Um, and so actually um, I'd, I'd avoided talking about the pregnancy because I did not, like, I really did not want to send the message um, mm. And women in particular, that I, w- I had to leave because I was pregnant with my second child. It was interesting, though, when it became public that you were pregnant, there was a lot of, aha, uh-huh, okay, yeah. right, that's yeah. what was that what was behind it. Yeah. I, I, I want to just um, come back to this issue of, of motherhood and combining a, a role as in, in political leadership as you were. You'll recall, of course, when our former Prime Minister John Howard uh, spoke at the National Press Club, I think it was 2016, where he went as far as saying he didn't think that there would ever be 50% uh, women represented in Parliament because it was too hard. It just wasn't possible. And then he went on to say that's because women are predominantly the carers, the mothers, and it's just the way it is. What was your response to that at the time? How did you feel and and, and now? Oh, I still feel the same. I think that's a cop-out. I 
I think that um, we are slowly seeing change within um, households and families. We see a number of... A, a number Very of, slowly though, aren't we? Well, yeah, but we've got a number of female members of parliament who um, the father of their child has taken on the primary caring role. Um, you know, people have found different ways to do it and people will find different ways to do it. I mean, I think that men and particularly conservative men like John Howard have been making excuses for the lack of women in the parliament and in their parties forever and a day and that's just another example of it. Kate, uh, we could go on talking about that for ages as a fascinating subject, but we're going to take a short break and then come back and talk a little bit more broadly about uh, leadership and, and the traits of leadership. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Broad Talk. I'm Virginia Hausker and we're speaking today to Kate Ellis, who's had an extraordinary career as a political leader, as one of the youngest politicians to enter the Australian Parliament and served for 15 years in a number of ministerial roles. Kate, the issue of whether or not leadership is gendered is one that bounces around backwards and forwards and often causes, of course, heated debate. We're hearing it a little bit now in this extraordinary COVID time, particularly as we know some of the nations around the world that have done well in handling the pandemic and keeping populations calm and also keeping the rates of infection low are nations that are headed, led by women. Mm. Where do you sit on the debate of whether or not leadership traits are in fact gendered and whether women lead or can lead differently? Well, I, I think that if you look to New Zealand, you can see that there is a very different model of leadership. And I love Jacinda, by the way. And um, You and the rest of the world, I think. Right, we all do. Um, but I, I also think that I don't think that we should overstate that that means that that's the only way that women can lead. Women can lead in the same way that men have um, or we can choose to take a different path and I think that different path is what's really exciting. Do you think that perhaps because we have had such a gendered 
sort of stereotypical view of leadership for so long that in fact men have been very constrained also? I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. Um, I think it's men have been constrained and men have also had quite different experiences. And when we look at the parliament, we can see that even when there's more women, we've still had until very recently, men have traditionally um, taken hold of certain portfolio areas and it's been women that have had largely the social services, the welfare portfolios, the caring portfolios, the early education portfolios. So women's experience has actually been different in the lead up to leadership. We've been allowed to be compassionate, to be gentle, to focus on um, a whole range of issues that men probably don't have as much experience at doing publicly um, or policy-wise. So I, I don't think it's just you know, that this is something that's biologically entrenched in uh, men and women, but I think the experiences that they have on the road to leadership are very different normally. So now that we're recognising some of those traits of leadership that are successful, um, particularly, again, at this, this really difficult time, do you do you think that we are possibly opening up, and I'm talking globally here, to an understanding of leadership that is is, is bigger and broader and possibly more feminised? I, I think that that's the really exciting potential of the situation we're in. And, I mean, the big unknown is we know that we're going to be in a devastating economic circumstances across the world when we get out of this. Um, so there's a question that society is going to have to make, and that is do we go to the hard-nosed, you know, cut and burn and focus on the bottom line and the economy or do we take this opportunity to actually focus on people's lives, um, people's support structures, people's experiences, the welfare system, and that more compassionate style of government? And I think that it's a really exciting opportunity that we have at the moment. It remains to be seen which road we go down. How do you think, or what are some of the ways that we can ensure that we do take that road, though, in a really positive way? I mean, is it possible that whilst some of us getting very excited about this opportunity, as you've just said, that it might slip away if we don't grasp the opportunity now? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt it could slip away. I mean, I look at the US and I look at what's happened in the US in such a short amount of time in terms of how polarised their politics is, the direction that their country's had. And you can see that I think that all of us have been a bit complacent. and We think that everything's going to be okay, we're going to travel down a kind of moderate path and we're going to head in the right direction and we can see how easy it is for that to all be turned around. And I think that when we're faced with the kind of global upheaval that we're faced with now and we will be coming out, then it is a fork in the road and countries could choose to go either way. Countries might decide that they need a strong authoritarian leader, you know, of the traditional male leadership background to stand up and see them through this and give them comfort. I really hope that society sees that this is an opportunity um, for us to change the change the way and have a better outcome. But no, I don't know. I, I, I can't. I wish I had a crystal ball <laughs> and I could see which way it's going to go. But mm. I just, I just don't. We look. We all wish we had that crystal ball. And, and perhaps a few sort of, um, I don't know, boxing gloves to push it forward, you know, such that we do use this opportunity for 
some significant change in, in a positive direction in terms of leadership. Kate, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Yes, yeah, so I am, um, I'm working on a book. Basically, Do you have a title I'm, yet? I have many titles, Virginia, and <laughs> the day you ask me on. Um, so no, we haven't locked in a title yet. Um, but basically, a, a couple of things happened. W- one thing about my 15 years in the Parliament is I couldn't count how many times I was asked to speak or write or um, be part of a panel to talk about my experiences as being a woman in Parliament. And I always turned, I always declined those opportunities. I always thought it's not my job to talk about myself, to talk about, you know, the woes of politicians. It's my job to talk about the community. And I guess once I got out, I noticed a couple of things. One was that there is a real concern in the community about women in politics. You know, we had obviously Julia Gillard's experience as Prime Minister, but then we had Emma Hassar's story, Julia Banks, um, you know, there's been Julie Bishop's um, experience putting a hand up for the leadership. Mm-hmm. There's been a run of all of these negative stories about women in politics and it became very clear to me that this has had an impact on young women's views on whether or not they'd like a career in politics. We've seen surveys showing nine out of 10 young Australian women think it's too Mm. hard on women and they wouldn't consider a a career there. I was really concerned about this. I mean, I want to see more women in the parliament. I absolutely do. And it struck me that we never tell the whole story. We, because Women MPs are too busy focused on their jobs to talk about their experiences. We only hear the scandals. We only hear the downsides. So I thought it was a worthwhile project to talk to women across the political spectrum about their experiences in the parliament, um, good and bad, so that we can show the whole picture and have a realistic portrayal. And hopefully other young women that are interested in going in politics, going into politics, can learn a bit from other people's experiences and can go in with their eyes wide open um, about what actually happens. It's. I think you are the perfect person to be doing um, such a book and, and a project like this. I know I um, sat down and spoke with you when you were still in Parliament uh, around 2018 and or 2019 even, we had just witnessed probably one of the worst years around, uh, for, uh, worst years for women in politics in terms of bad media headlines, particularly, I've, I've got to say, on the conservative side of politics where for a while there, there wasn't a day without a headline about the Conservative Party's uh, women problem or Liberal Party's women problem, headlines about sexism and harassment. And when I did sit down with you, I was surprised Uh, to learn, and not just from you, but from a number of women I interviewed, how there wasn't a lot of collegiality among women across parties in Parliament to really take on this issue of uh, sexism and harassment and bullying. Um, Has that changed? Is is that what you're doing through this project, is actually crossing all uh, political lines to get women to, to share their stories together? I don't think that that's changed. I actually think it's getting worse. But I thought it was interesting that if we're going to talk about women in politics, let's talk about not just Labor women. So I needed to make sure that this wasn't going to be a party political book and to see whether there are different experiences in different parties, different views on how we improve things going forward. 
and also different, I mean, there's quite different advice sometimes mm. from women with different political backgrounds. So that's been a really interesting part of this process is interviewing women who I'd sat on the opposite side of the chamber from for, you know, a decade or more and had never had a conversation mm-hmm. about our shared experiences as women in the building and our different views. Um, so that's been really interesting for me. But you're right, it's something that never happened when I was there. It's extraordinary that that to hear you say that it's actually getting worse, um, and that's that's quite sad. But hopefully, your book will, will will help open that up a little bit to a bit more collegiality, and dare I say it, even a little bit of sisterhood. Um, what are you finding overall, though, in terms of the sexism and the harassment, even sexual harassment, that was really bubbling around as a media issue, particularly around twenty eighteen? Is that still brewing, and how is it being tackled? One thing that became apparent to me really early on when I started interviewing MPs for this book was that I just assumed that everyone had had the same experiences that I had. (laughs) And and it was actually quite alarming to learn that that wasn't the case. Um, Well, it was probably good um, that that wasn't the case in, in some regards. But what's become apparent is that I think Penny Wong um, says in one of the interviews, she says, all women are treated differently in Parliament, but the extent to which they're treated differently from their male colleagues differs from woman to woman. So a lot of my experiences were, I mean, I was young and I was single when I was elected. So I think people do use different weapons um, against women than men, and one of them was absolutely spreading sexual rumours, you know, trying to tarnish someone's reputation or, you know, slut-shaming as lots of people term it these days. I mean, that's something that I dealt with an incredibly large amount. And it's been really interesting because it seems that younger women have um, dealt with that more in the parliament. But also what's really interesting is that single women have dealt with it much more as well. So, whereas other women may have had different experiences where it's more um, a focus on their appearance or motherhood questions have been much, much bigger than I anticipated to the extent of, you know, people being questioned when they're standing for pre-selection, if they're a mum, who's going to look after your children, you know, Mm. what values do you have if you're going to leave your children that much, Um, what a terrible woman you are, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, mm. but equally, if you don't have children, then, um, you know, how can you understand what mm. Australian families are going through? Um, there's the, the issues around motherhood for female MPs are the one thing that seems to just impact w- women across the board, across the political spectrum. and You don't see that situation uh, improving as we slowly, slowly uh, increase the number of women in Parliament and that the figures are still quite pathetic, but you don't see it being an, a sort of a natural co- corollary that more women means that, that, that those sorts of stupid arguments weaken? Um, I certainly hope so. But the, the interesting thing is... So it's something that you face in the parliament, it's something that you face in the media, but it's also something you face in the community. I mean, I know one female MP who said when she was campaigning for the first time, she would not put photos of her children in any of her newsletters or brochures because she knew that there were large parts of the community who would 
sometimes say to her face, um, I'm not voting for you because I think I think it's disgusting that you're going to leave your children. Whereas we see every time a male politician um, has a new addition to the family, they're on they're in the newspaper, they're on the front page of every newsletter, they're holding it up, winning dad of the year, hold a baby. Um, <laughs> that still that still really exists. And yeah, we can change it as we change the number of women in the parliament, but we actually can't really change it until we really change community attitudes as well about women and work and women and family. How do you think we can do that, though? I know that's a a very simple question to a hugely complex problem. But, you know, in doing the research that you're doing and the interviews you're doing, are you formulating any thoughts about what we need to do that we're not doing? Um, Well, I think there's some things we can do to the parliament that can can help make that easier. But actually, I, I, I think the only real answer is you show successful women who are doing both. I mean, we come back to Jacinda Ardern. I think nothing would change attitudes more than people seeing a Prime Minister give birth in office, um, raise a baby in office and do a fantastic job. And that's what changes attitudes is people saying that it's not only possible, it's it's a great thing. And it- but, you know, the, the, the trouble I have with pointing to Jacinda and, you know, like you, I think she's just extraordinary, but she is an exception. You know, she, she is just so exceptional and so many women just, you know, myself included, couldn't do that. You know, couldn't couldn't manage all of that, and uh, well, obviously, no man can because no man's giving birth in office. But um, it, there's sort of a danger when we point to her, I think, and and no, to some you're, extraordinary you're right. women. You're right, and I should have given a different example because, I mean, as much as some people interpreted my decision as saying you can't be a mother of young children and be a member of parliament, we don't hold up the the other examples enough. I mean, I know from my party. Tanya Plibersek um, was a minister when she had her youngest child, is an amazing mother, is an amazing member of parliament and manages, you know, with three children to to make it work. Claire um, O'Neill was elected just weeks after having her first child, had another child. Amanda Rishworth um, is sitting on the front bench with two young children and one of them just turned one. So it, it is actually... The reason that I'm so adamant that my decision doesn't um, reflect on all women is because I, I've seen firsthand amazing mothers and amazing fathers who are doing it, who are having children, who are doing their jobs and who are excelling at both. It, it just didn't work for me. But I, I think it's unfortunate that that has to be interpreted as a as a wider statement about what's possible mm. for women and what's possible for politics and politicians. I, I'm going to correct you there when you say it didn't yeah. work for you. It actually did work for you. No, that's it worked true. for you. It worked for you right. for quite some time. Um, 15 years in Parliament, you know, in various ministerial positions. You know, that's that's really quite something, <laughs> and it's also a long time. <laughs> I'll add another thing which doesn't get the attention. It didn't just work for me, but how lucky, how lucky was I that I had a newborn child, I had a job that I absolutely loved that was stimulating and rewarding, and I got to travel with my child, I got to take Mm. my child to work with me, I got to take my child to school visits, to parliament, to everywhere, 
how lucky am I that there's not many jobs out there mm. that mothers can do that? And I look now when I take my children to childcare, I see I see the predominantly mums who are desperately trying to drop their children off, you know, having got them organised, having them clinging to their legs, looking at their watch, knowing that mm. they need to be at work in 12 minutes' time or there'll be consequences, you know, with no flexibility. Like that's hard. What what mm. I got to do was amazing and I was so incredibly privileged to get to um, spend that time with my child and with my job at the same time that... You know, it, it's not that it was hard, it's that I was lucky and we should tell that side of the story too. Yeah. Uh, yours is the first office I ever saw with a cot in it. <laughs> and I must say, uh, on walking in and seeing that, it, it it's really interesting how it immediately affects the way you think of the person behind the desk. Mm, um, yeah. And I've got to say, and this is my bias, but I, I see it immediately, the effect on me is is a warming, mm. is, is a, a sense that this person's very approachable, apart from being flexible and obviously whip smart uh, as you are, but, but very approachable. And, um, you know, if only we could somehow, I don't know, inculcate that thinking much more broadly. Kate, mm. I'm going to have to wind it up, but I want to finish off on um, just one question for you. As we know, Julia Gillard recently uh, released her, her book, Women in Leadership, and I thought it was very interesting in a lot of the, the, the talk around that during her book tour. She made the point that there are a couple of things that she would do differently if she had her time again in politics uh, and in political leadership. Looking back over your very long, very solid and, and very successful political career, in terms of women in leadership, is there anything that you would do very differently? <laughs> oh, gosh, I feel like I'm climbing onto the therapist's couch. Here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Sorry about I don't that. Know if you want to go down this pathway. Um, well, I think I'd probably rethink the leather dress, <laughs> possibly. Um, no, I, I think I think it's um, – I feel sad that I felt that I didn't belong there for so much of my career and when I finally – felt confident and felt I belong there and felt that I was good at it and that I had something to offer, it was kind of the time that it was time for me to wrap up and leave. And so I don't know how you change that, but I just wish that I had more of those years and less of those um, feeling like an outsider. That is an incredibly powerful statement, Kate, and I think that alone for younger women and emerging leaders to hear is incredibly encouraging. We all learn. We all look back, mm-hmm. I do, over my own career, and we learn and think years later, if only I had done done it a little bit differently. Yes. Um, can I also just say, I, I, I want to finish <laughs> off on this, but I want to come back to the leather dress and the killer yeah. heels. Yeah. You know, I, I hope you wouldn't rethink that. I, I think what we need is we, as in we in the media, and we all as a public need to rethink that. I have certainly rethought that. I've looked back at those images over years and have rethought my initial response to that, and it's very different now from from 2010, I can tell you. Um, I think it is now something that should be celebrated and we're saying, yeah, women are different. 
They, they, they don't they don't have to wear a a, a suit and a button up shirt. So I, I would hope that you wouldn't rethink the leather dress. It is an important part well, of our political history. I'm standing by the Sunday Age shoot. I'm standing by my pink flowers, but I, I'll concede on the leather dress. I think that's a reasonable, <laughs> moderate position to take. I thought it was an amazing picture. Kate, look, it's it, it's been so lovely talking with you and I really appreciate your time. Good luck with the book and the the research involved. I know that would be, you know, incredibly difficult, but also I would imagine very um I don't know, cathartic to to be able to talk to women on the other side of politics as well as mm. your own. Mm. Yeah, it's been really interesting. So uh, I'm very grateful that women have spoken to me and I hope that I managed to pull it together in a way that is helpful for, for other women that come after us. I'm sure you will. And and is it too early to say when are we expecting to see this book? Or well, it's is definitely it... 2021. It's a bit early to put a month on it at the moment, I say, as I'm looking around at these pieces of paper still lying <laughs> on my carpet. You'll get there. They'll all fall into place, as, as Helen Garner sometimes does. Just open the window and let the papers blow around and see how they land. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like something I might soon resort to. Kate Ellis, thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you, and thank you for joining Broad Talk. Thank you, Virginia. Kate has one of those beautiful smiles, perhaps the most beautiful I've seen on a politician. It's warm and inclusive. But as you could no doubt detect in our discussion, she's no pushover. Behind that smile is a steely determination. And thank goodness for that. I hope you enjoyed this chat. We've got more terrific, insightful, personal and some pretty challenging conversations with leaders coming up. So make sure you subscribe to Broad Talk. And each new episode will appear each Thursday in your pod feeds. And if you're feeling warmly disposed, perhaps you'd like to leave us a review on whatever pod platform you listen to. We love hearing your thoughts about the series and leaving a review will be a big help to us in getting the word out about this podcast series. And I just want to say thanks to listener Red Girl 80 who wrote on Apple Podcasts. Virginia Hausiger has given us such a gift with this podcast, an in-depth look at leadership, power and women's place in it. A must listen. Thanks for that, Red Girl. Keep them coming. It's such a lovely comment. And thanks to all of you who've been in touch. And my thanks to the world's best podcast producer, Martin Pierce. You can connect with me on Twitter at Virginia underscore house, H-A-U-S-S, or find me on Facebook at Broad Talk, or one word. And join the Broad Talk Roundtable group where you can check in with questions, comments, views, news, anything you'd like to share. There's always a seat for you at the Broad Talk Roundtable. And for some great reads, check out broadagenda.com.au. So until next week, Broadies, happy chatting. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 